Last night I had uh, what many of us would look at as a rather unique opportunity and experience. As many of you know, uh, I work with uh, people who have a criminal record. I work with them to help them transition back into society. The ministry with which I work is called Safer Communities Ministry. Last night, they had their annual banquet. I hosted a table. And at that table was seated a counselor, a law enforcement officer, and a man who spent 25 years in prison for murder. And many of us would consider that unique because we don't consider that we rub shoulders and associate and fellowship with people who are guilty of murder. You stop for a think for a minute. Many cases we actually do in God's eyes. And that's the uh, text that we're going to look at this morning. I would like you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 20. If you would stand as we read that this morning. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of the hell fire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar. Go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. You may be seated. What we see here is that God looks at the inner attitude because it's the inner attitude that precedes the act. And therefore, we have to consider what is going on under the surface. Most of us would not consider that uh, we have been guilty of murder. And yet, in this passage, God points out that for many of us, we have an inner attitude which constitutes what murder is. Generally, we don't like to look at the consequences of the outward act, so we're very creative. We, we determine other ways to deal with the issue. We wish people were dead and then treat them as if they were. We look down on them. We belittle them. We berate them. We look at them as being worthless. And so it is that in this passage, Jesus is going to tell us some of the problems with that attitude. It's illustrated in a cartoon strip that many of you may be familiar with. Any of you familiar with Garfield? Garfield is a cat. You know anything about the nature of cats? Dogs are man's best friends. Cats kind of go their own way, and Garfield is a cat with a real attitude. Garfield has a friend named Arlene. In this particular episode, the two of them meet, and Arlene speaks says, I see you are still fat. 
Garfield replies, I, still, I see you still have that space between your teeth. Arlene says, well, at least I can close my mouth. Garfield says, I can go on a diet. Arlene replies, you're not likely to go on a diet. And Garfield replies, you're not likely to close your mouth. <laughs> so Arlene says, hey, why are we fighting like children? I'm sorry. Garfield says, I'm sorry too. And as they part, Garfield says, so long. Arlene says, so long, Garfield. But as they walk away, Arlene speaks under her breath, lard belly. And Garfield, in turn, under his breath, says, beaver face. So we can see the, the attitude that we often try to hide. Garfield and Arlene are trying to make it look as though, you know, they're fine, they're okay, they're righteous on the outside, but inside they have an inner attitude which they're trying to hide. So it is so much with the rest of us. As we look at this passage, the very first verse, verse 20, okay, we see that our external religious appearance can conceal an inner sinful attitude. What Jesus is dealing with here in the, in the context is he had, he had been baptized, pointed out by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God. He had then gone out into the wilderness for 40 days where he was tested. Okay? He passed that test, and now he has come in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 to present to the people who are thronging to hear him what his principles of the kingdom are going to be that he is going to establish if they accept him. Of course, we know they didn't. But one of the things that Jesus wrestled with and went head to head with over and over again was the problems that the religious leaders of his day were using, misusing God's law. They were perverting it, okay? They were distorting it. And so what we see here in the opening verses of his Sermon on the Mount, in verses 21 through 48, he gives six examples here of how it says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And so in these six examples, Jesus is contrasting, you know, what the religious leaders are teaching versus what God really intended in the law, okay? Now, we're only going to look at the very first example. But Jesus, which is, deals with murder, but Jesus introduces it with the verse, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the people of Jesus' day would have been shocked at that statement because if anybody was religious, if anybody was accepted before God, it had to be the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law because they were there every time the church doors were open. They kept all the rules. They, they tithed even to the extent of their, the herbs, okay? They did all the ceremonial washings. But what Jesus is pointing out here is that Guys, you have it together on the outside, but on the inside, you're like a whitewashed tomb. You're, you're full of dead men's bones, okay? It's your inner attitude. And again, going back to the point he makes, the inner attitude always precedes the act. It's just like with Garfield and Arlene, okay? So he goes on to point out in verse 21, he goes back to the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, where it says, Thou shalt not murder. 
It says, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now, murder is taking someone's life for purely selfish reasons, personal reasons, okay? And Jesus here, you know, points out the fact that when that happens, you will go to court, you will be tried. If you're found guilty, you're going to be executed, okay? That execution was not considered murder, okay? It was justice, okay? So, but Jesus is pointing out here also that there is an inner attitude that lies behind that act, okay? And so he goes on to deal with that in verse 22. He points out three internal attitudes that God considers to be equal to murder. Look at verse 22, the very first phrase. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And this is, again, is being angry with someone for purely personal reasons. Each of us has what we consider to be a, you might say, a bill of rights, okay? Things that we feel like we are entitled to. And woe to the person that violates any of those rights. For example, when we're driving, we think that we have a, a right not for anybody to pull out in front of us or to be playing with their cell phone while they're at the stoplight when it turns green, they sit there and wait. Because we have a right to get where we're going in the time that we determined, right? But God tells us that, you know, there is a problem that when we become angry with someone and we let those seeds fester and ferment, they grow into hatred. And that hatred often can grow into the outward act. Okay. When I was in the military, I spent 33 years in the military, met lots of different people. Some were outstanding soldiers. Some were outstanding leaders. But there were those that were, you can call them duds, people you really would prefer not to associate with. They were not men of integrity. When I went to Vietnam, there was one there in our combat unit that I don't know what I did to tick him off, but he took it his personal mission in life to be the thorn in my side. Every time we were together, he was putting me down. He was pushing me. He was bullying me. He was making threats. But one particular mission, we'd been out for, for days pushing through the brush, loaded down like pack animals, and we were tired. We were weary. And my nemesis, Private Black Shares, had been up to his usual stuff. About noon one day, we paused for a break. We were all tired. And so Black Shears found a fallen log, fallen tree, and he sat down on one end of it. I was tired. I went over and sat down on the other end. No sooner had I sat down on that log than Black Shears looked at me with a cold stare and with a cold tone, he said, get off my log. I looked back at him pretty much with the same look and the same tone, and I said, it's not your log. His eyes narrowed, and his tone grew more threatening, and he said, get off my log. Keep in mind, we're in combat. Around my neck, I had strapped an M16. <laughs> the safety was off, and my finger was on the trigger. 
and the muzzle of that weapon was pointed right at him. I figured the next thing he was going to do, he was going to pull off that log, and he was going to try and physically remove me from it. I already decided, he gets up off that log, I'm going to pull the trigger. I wanted him out of my life. Done with that guy. Thankfully, our platoon leader saw what was happening. He intervened, said, cool it, and calm the situation. But the reality is, folks, my heart, my inner attitude, I was guilty of murder. Well, Jesus goes on and expands his indictment for inner, inner attitudes in the next phrase. He says, again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. Any of you called anybody Raka lately? Probably not. <laughs> Some of your translations probably use the word insult. But Raka is a term that is very difficult to translate. We don't have a, an easily translatable term in English. And so what the translators have done is they've done what's called transliteration. They've taken the Aramaic term, Raka, taken the letters from that word, transferred, installed them to English letters, and come up with the word Raka. We've done the same thing with Amen, okay? Amen is not a translation. It is a transliteration. But Raka is a term that expresses arrogant contempt towards someone, okay? It's basically saying, I'm bigger, better, faster, wealthier, better looking, better dressed, wealthier, smarter than you are, okay? It's looking down your nose at somebody else. How many of you have a personal computer that you work with? Okay, a lot of it. How many of you know what an ID10T error is when you're working on it? Okay, a few of you. Okay. Let me give you a few examples of what an ID10T error is. Okay. It's a, a fellow who thought that his CD drive was a coffee cup holder, and he was shocked when the weight of his coffee cup broke the CD holder. It's the fellow who couldn't get his computer to turn on. And he was surprised when he discovered he would plug the power strip into itself. Then there was a lady who returned her keyboard to the, uh, to the store because she said it was defective. When the store manager asked her, well, what's the problem with it? What's the defect? It doesn't have the any key. And the store manager said, Lady, you have to be smarter than the machine. Basically, he was calling her an idiot. And that's an ID 10T error. Well, Jesus goes on to conclude his indictment of our inner attitudes in the final sentence of verse 22. He says, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, the word fool here does translate. It comes from the root word in the Greek from which we get our word moron. And basically, it's looking at someone and viewing them as worthless. It's equivalent to saying, you know, you, you scumbag, you slime ball, you worthless piece of excrement, Okay. When I looked at this one, I thought of a young lady, a girl that I grew up with. Went to grade school with her. She was also involved in our church. Her name was Irene. If you know your Greek, 
The word Irene comes from a Greek word that means peace. Didn't really describe Irene. Oh, she was at peace with God. I knew that because she was part of our church and she loved Jesus. She loved God. But she wasn't at peace with her fellow man because her fellow man wouldn't let her be at peace with him. You didn't have to be with Irene very long before you realized that something was wrong with Irene. Something was different. Her elevator didn't go all the way to the top. She was mentally challenged, and severely so. You know, but she didn't disrupt. She was a quiet person. She just wanted most of all to fit in and be accepted. I remember seeing her on the playground when we were in seventh grade, and one of the uh, bullies there, a bigger boy, was berating her, making fun of her. And then finally he began kicking her. Nobody came to her rescue. Nobody came to her defense because we viewed Irene as lower than we were, as worthless. So you've got the attitude of getting angry with someone, letting it fester and become hatred. You've got the attitude of arrogant contempt, and then you've got the attitude of viewing others as worthless. Why do these attitudes constitute murder in God's eyes? Well, it's found in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, where God deals with murder again, but he tells us why that attitudes, those attitudes are wrong. He says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. We're all created in the image of God. Doesn't matter who we are. Doesn't matter what we've done. Our background, our culture, our ethnic group, the color of our skin, our status, we are all made in the image of God. And think for a moment, if each of us treated everyone who comes across our path as though they bear the image of God, which God says they do, how different that would make our society and our culture. And so that's why God says, if we have those attitudes, we are guilty of murder. So at this point, we need to ask ourselves some questions because these are the questions that are going to be answered in the remaining passage that we look at. In God's eyes, am I guilty of murder? If so, have my attitudes offended someone? Should I be concerned with those offenses? What difference does it make if I ignore them? And finally, if it does make a difference, how do I mend those offenses? Well, in the the next two verses, concluding our passage, verses 23 and 24, Jesus gives us three reasons why we should deal with those offenses. He tells us, therefore, okay, in other words, the therefore is important. He's reaching a conclusion, okay, in light of what I've just talked to you about the inner attitudes, the inner attitude preceding the act, therefore. If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Well, the reasons that he gives for many offenses, the very first one is it affects my worship. That's our vertical relationship, okay? Note where this takes place. The person he is speaking of here is offering a gift before the altar. In Jesus' day, there was only one place where there was an altar, and that was at the temple. They are there as an act of worship, okay? 
to offer something to God. And so we wonder, well, how does this affect my worship? Well, first thing it does is it makes us hypocrites. When we come before God and we've got an unreconciled relationship in our life, it makes us hypocrites. Note what God says in Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 and 9a. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. We worship a holy God. And when we come before him, he expects us to be holy. The only way we can do that is to deal with the sin in our life so that, you know, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the point. And look at Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known? Okay. And then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, We are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Note in that list, stealing, murder, committing adultery, perjury. Who are those committed against? Our fellow man. And note that each one of those stems from an inner attitude that precedes the act itself. And notice that it affects the worship. Well, another way that it affects our worship is it creates a barrier between us and God. Look at Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Okay. God does not want our relationship between him and us to be affected. But that's what happens when we have unconfessed sin, unreconciled relationships in our life. Think, if you will, of Adam and Eve. God created them perfect. He put them in a perfect environment. He created them to have fellowship with himself and with one another. He gave them one rule. You've got all these trees, three of these trees that you can partake of. But there's one that I don't want you to take of because it's the knowledge of good and evil and you don't need that knowledge. Trust me. But they decided they wanted to act independently of God, not trust him, become gods themselves, and they violated that. So one of the first things we see is it affected the relationship with Adam and Eve. You know, they hadn't been problem had no problem prior to that with being naked. But once they had committed that sin, then they had to cover themselves. And then when God came walking in the garden, they didn't go rushing out to meet him. They hid because their fellowship with God had been broken. It had been interrupted. Note also that God asked them, you know, where are you? He knew where they were. He asked them that question because he was acting to convict their conscience so that they could reconcile and deal with it. Well, not only does an offense affect our worship, the vertical relationship, it also affects our witness, the horizontal relationship. Our, it affects our 
relationships with other people, just as it did between Adam and Eve. And one of the reasons for that is that when we commit an offense against someone, we begin to be burdened down with the weight of the guilt, okay? Remember Jesus speaking in verse 23. He said, you're there before the altar presenting your gift, and you remember, okay? That remembering, that's the conscience. That's the Holy Spirit convicting us of our wrong so that we will go deal with it. But when we don't, that guilt begins to build up, and the scales begin to go like this, and we begin to try to balance the scale by blame shifting. Now, we point out the other person's faults. Well, if they had not done this, or it's because they did that, that I committed my offense. It's the same thing that Adam and Eve did. When God confronted them in the garden, he asked Adam, okay, what happened here, Adam? Well, Adam said, he didn't fess up. He said, hey, it wasn't my fault. It was the woman that you gave me. It was her fault and your fault, God. It wasn't me. So then he went to Eve and he said, Eve, you know, what happened? Well, it was the serpent. The serpent deceived me. And I took and ate. So they wouldn't fess up. And the scriptures don't go into this, but you can imagine, you know, what that did between Adam and Eve because Adam wouldn't take responsibility and blamed Eve. You can imagine how Eve felt, okay? It further separated them. And that's the other point of it affecting our witness is it builds barbed wire barricades between us and the one we have offended. Look at Proverbs chapter 18, verse 19. An offended brother is more unyielding than a fortified city. And disputes are like the barred gates of a citadel. When offenses are not dealt with, they can have far-reaching and far-lasting consequences. A newspaper article from the, uh, New Mexico in Bingham, New Mexico, illustrates this truth. It's an Old West feud that had all the elements, an ambush along a lonely trail. A trial that made headlines, even a range war rooted in politics as well as cattle. And it's a feud that never died. The Fountains still blame the Lees for the 1896 deaths of Colonel Albert Fountain and his eight-year-old son, whose bodies were never found. The Lees still protest their innocence. Oliver Lee, a prominent Democrat and landholder, was acquitted in 1899 of murdering the Republican fountain. But that didn't end it. A great-granddaughter of Fountain says that a great-grandson of Lee refused to shake hands during a 100th anniversary event. Gordon Owen, a New Mexico State University professor who wrote a book about the murders, commented, they all sat in their own little section of the room, and there wasn't much interaction between them, even 100 years later. So because an offense affects my vertical relationship, okay, my worship, and it also affects my horizontal relationship, my witness, Christ gives us the third reason. He places a priority on reconciliation. Note what he says. He says, first, first, okay, leave your gift there and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother, okay? That is what God's priority is. We have to do that first. And because these 
consequences of unreconciled relationships are so great. We finally have to know, how do I mend them? What are the steps? Well, the steps are found, I believe, in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 24. It's the story of the prodigal son. Okay. The prodigal son is definitely a candidate for mending relationships. Because we know that there were a man, a very wealthy man, he had two sons. And the younger son came to him one day and said, I want my inheritance. Now somebody tell me, when do you normally receive your inheritance? What? Upon the death of the person who is granting it, right? So in effect, what was that younger son saying to his father? What was his attitude in his heart toward his father? I wish you were dead. And in God's eyes, that's what? You got it. Okay. So sometimes we don't see that in this story. But once he got the money, you know, the relationship, you know, was broken, okay? And so he separated from his father. Went into a foreign country, wasted it in riotous living. And once it was all gone, his friends that had probably been with him while he had money were gone also. And so he began to be in want, and he hired himself out to a pig farmer. For a Jew, that was the lowest of the low. You couldn't get any lower than an unclean animal, and the lowest unclean animal was a pig. And it was so bad that he wanted to eat the food that the pigs ate, but he couldn't digest it. The pigs could, but he couldn't. And so this brought some illumination to him. He finally came to his senses, and he began to realize what he had done and how he had offended his father. And so we look at verse 20, and we see, so he got up and went to his father, and that is the first step. We have to go to the offended party. We need to keep it as private as possible. We need to pick a favorable time. We need to pray for receptiveness, and we need to persevere. Well, the second step in the process is found in verse 21. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. We must confess our wrong. We need to identify the basic offense. We need to work on the wording, and we need to accept responsibility for what we did. And we need to have a repentant attitude. One of the best ways to do that is to view the offense from their point of view. I'm the youngest of three sons. My middle brother, he was the prodigal in our family. He was the only one in our family that chose to drink and smoke and waste his talents on riotous living. I resented that when I was growing up because we, we were not raised that way. And I did not treat my brother very well. In fact, there was one time when our parents were out of town, I locked him out of the house. I never expressed gratitude or appreciation or thankfulness for the things that he did for me. I was in Dallas, Texas at Dallas Seminary first year, and we presented this truth. And they said, go home and think about people that you've offended. My brother snapped to the front of my mind. I relived what I had done to him. It broke my heart. I still remember vividly, pick up the phone, 
and calling my brother who was in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I was in Dallas, he was in Tulsa. And confessing to him what I'd done. And I asked his forgiveness. That's step number three. It's in verse 19. Make me like one of your hired men. Expressed his repentant attitude, his humbleness, his desire for reconciliation, and his desire to make restitution. Sometimes we have to make restitution, just like the prodigal son did. He said, he didn't ask to be restored. Make me, you know, take me back as your son. No, he said, make me like one of your hired men. I owe you a debt, and I'm willing to work it off. I'm not going to stand here this morning and tell you that this is easy. It's been a tough load, a tough lesson for me to learn over the years. God has hammered it into my life. But I will say this, what God calls us to do, he always gives us the strength to do it. And the rewards, folks, are worth it. I want to close with with a story, a true story, which brings together, pulls together all the elements of this passage this morning. It goes into the roots that cause us to develop the attitudes that lead to sin, the outward acts. It goes through the steps of going to the one we've offended, confessing our wrong, and asking for forgiveness. And finally, it goes the rewards. It's a story of a man called Johnny Lee Cleary. He was a man who had a very rough upbringing. He was born in Dell City, Oklahoma, just outside of Oklahoma City. His father was a racist and taught Johnny to hate blacks. His uncle was in the Ku Klux Klan and bragged about having murdered a black man. When Johnny was 11, he witnessed his father place a pistol to his head and pull the trigger. Shortly after that event, his mother kicked him out of the house and moved in a boyfriend. Johnny went to Los Angeles to live with family members where he experienced further abuse. While living there, he came under the influence of the Ku Klux Klan leader, David Duke. Some of you may remember him. Duke promised him a place where he would be accepted as a member of a family. Johnny jumped at the opportunity. At the age of 14, he joined the Ku Klux Klan. He rose rapidly in the group, eventually returning to Oklahoma to build the ranks of the Klan. During this time, a radio station invited him to debate an Oklahoma pastor who was a leader in the civil rights movement. Clary expected the Reverend Wade Watts to hate him as much as he hated blacks. But Watts stunned Clary. He walked into the broadcast booth, smiled, put out his hand and told the then Grand Dragon Clary that he loved him. Clary was shocked. He had set a fire that damaged Watts' church in McAllister, Oklahoma, a crime for which he was never prosecuted. Reluctantly, he shook the pastor's hand in spite of the Klan's restriction and rule against touching blacks. Several years later, following a number of incidents where Clary further harassed the Reverend Watts, Clary came to the end of his rope. Disillusioned, he contemplated ending his life just like his father had ended his. As he pondered pulling the trigger, he noticed a Bible on the table in the motel where he was staying. Opening it, he read the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. He knew he needed redemption, and he realized that God was his only 
hope. After having decided to enter the ministry, he called Reverend Watts to ask his forgiveness. In response, the pastor invited Johnny to come to his church to speak, the very one that Johnny had set on fire. When Johnny came to the white pillbox-style church in McAllister, he was too nervous to think about the last time he had been there. Reporters gathered for his first public appearance since leaving the Klan. The pastor had announced to his congregation the week before that Johnny was coming. Many stayed home. The worshipers in the worn wooden pews crossed their arms and stared at Clary with lowered brows. He got no hallelujahs or amens when he told the congregation about the change in his life. As he concluded, he asked if anyone would like to know Jesus as their Savior. After a few tense moments, a teenage girl with tears in her eyes ran to the pulpit and hugged Johnny. She was the adopted mixed-race daughter of Reverend Watts, and her response broke the ice. I want to leave you with this, this thought for each of us. We need to search our hearts and determine, is there someone that we have offended, that we haven't made it right. If there is, we need to go to that person, confess our wrong, and ask for forgiveness. And the second thing I want to leave with us is that we need to be reminded every day that everyone we meet is made in the image of God. That makes keeping our accounts with him and with others so much easier.